Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Reckless to Talk, our TTRPG interview show, where we sit down with some of our favorite writers, players, GMs, and streamers to get to know a little bit more about what makes them who they are. I am, as always, your host, GM Nathan. And this week, I am really excited to bring you all a conversation with one of my favorite folks in the TTRPG space, Will Malkus from not-for-profit TTRPG studio Live from the Apocalypse. Will has long been a great behind-the-scenes friend and resource to us, as well as an um, in-front-of-the-scenes great performer, storyteller, and general presence uh, in his channel and in the TTRPG sphere. I always really admired how present he was in his performances and how easy he made his storytelling, player empowerment, and evocative character portrayals look. I've also always deeply appreciated the work their channel does for charity, encouraging people to donate directly to nonprofits they fundraise for and not compensate them at all, as well as their perspectives on a wide number of things, particularly in creating art here in late-stage capitalism. Long story short, Will is an absolute joy of a person and one of my favorites, and this conversation was a joy as well. With one final reminder that all of Will and Live from the Apocalypse's links are in the show notes, being the only further ado, here's this week's Reckless to Talk. See you next week. Hello, Will. Hello, Nathan. It is so lovely to be here with you. How are you today? I'm excellent. How are you? I am so friggin' excited and so happy and just generally put at great peace and joy in this moment as, as we sit down to do this, this Reckless to Talk recording. Do you know why that is, Will? Why is that, Nathan? It's because you're here, Will. And I'm, I'm so happy. happy. to be here. And so thankful for you to be here. Now, could you please, you know, before we get too far, before we just get carried away with uh, all of the enthusiasm and and love festing, could you please tell our dear listeners who you are, how they should know you, all the good things? I can do that. Yeah. Hi. Hello, everybody listening to this. My name is Will. You may have seen me uh, around the internets or the Twitterverse, uh, which is on the internets. Mm-hmm. I am one of the storytellers and organizers for Live from the Apocalypse, which is a not-for-profit TTRPG studio that makes actual play content on Twitch and in podcast form and does a bunch of other stuff, but it's all for nonprofits and things like that. We're all over the place and we do a lot of stuff. That, I think, is a, a slight understatement. And, uh, you know, you, dear listener, can kind of... Uh, Make that decision and distinction for yourselves, but I will at minimum sign off on you do a lot of stuff. That is, I never say it's good. I just (laughs) say there's a lot of it. There, it is prolific, and that is a that is a good word for it. Well, will thank you again for for coming by. Really, so friggin' excited to talk to you about you, about the stories that you tell, about the kind of like the very cool structure of life from the apocalypse. But first. You know, we we can't talk about these kind of grand things without without starting without starting at the beginning. So so for you, how did you kind of first get introduced to tabletop role playing games? And that can of course be just kind of like, oh yes, I read Lord of the Rings, or you know, read some fantasy or whatever, and then got hooked or whatever. But where does that journey kind of begin for you? 
Well, I was born in a hospital in Brooklyn, New York in the mm-hmm. year 1989. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm fucking no, I'm always here. Be like, yeah, hey, whatever, whatever this, this journey is for you, man, like very groovy. Please tell me. Start at the very beginning. It, I guess that's not inaccurate. It definitely started with my mom, um, who, as I was growing up, read me a lot of fantasy books. And then as I got older, I started to read them myself. Notably, the Chronicles of Narnia, I think, was probably Mm. where I started. She would read them to me before bed. When I got older, I read them myself. And that kind of naturally transitioned around the time that I was 12 or so, I think, maybe a little bit younger. I found the minifigures, the like lead minifigures that my dad had from when he played Dungeons and Dragons in the 80s. Oh, cool. And yeah. And I asked him about them at the time. I was like, what are these for? And he told me <laughs> that they were about Dungeons and Dragons. And I was like, oh, it's a game. He was like, yeah, it's a game. You go through adventures and you have a character that you play. And I was like, so it's like Monopoly or something like that. <laughs> I mean, he was like, okay, I see that. He was like, yeah, but there's no board or anything. It's all just kind of made up in your head. And I was like, that sounds boring. <laughs> and I don't want to do that. Monopoly baseline is, it was always a pretty boring game for me. And there's also no real rules and it's all just kind of made up anyway. It's like, mm, don't know. I see, I see where 12 year old Will was skeptical. Exactly. And um, from there, that was right around the time that the first Lord of the Rings movie was coming out, which was obviously a huge cultural yeah. touchstone for everybody in the <laughs> Western world. Yes. My mom said that I was not allowed to go see that movie until I read the books, The Lord oh, of the Rings, God. because she was a huge yeah, your your mom, who who makes uh, frequent appearances in your live streams, which we may talk about later. Uh, but d- have you have you told her that she was a gatekeeper? Have you like now as an adult been like, you're trying to mold me into being a, a, a capital T true fan? That is a great point. And I don't think I've ever thought of it like that before. But wow, she is very toxic. Get good. Read the books. Know the lore. You can't enjoy it without having read the pure work of, of Tolkien. I mean, damn. Yeah, thinking back on it, she did call me a fake fan. Yeah. And <laughs> threw me out of the van onto the side of the road. It's where, so. it's where the phrase actually originated. Pretty impressive exactly. bit of, of internet history. Uh, but so, so did you successfully read the books in time to see them in theaters? I did. I did, absolutely. And I was, uh, I was very hooked. The Lord of the Rings is very interesting. I will probably talk about this a little bit later, but I later would go on to study Lord of the Rings in my uh, college really? program. Yes. Where I went to college, there was actually a professor who specialized in Tolkien studies. Wow, um, cool. Yeah, he's he's all over the place now. He's called the Tolkien professor. His name is Corey Olson. And at the time, he was a professor at the college where I was attending. He was actually my thesis advisor. But that was much later in the future. After I read The Lord of the Rings, I was like, this shit rules. <laughs> and somehow, I think my uncle maybe introduced me to it, but I got my hands on one of the Drizzt, Duerd, and Forgotten Realms books. Ooh, okay, yep. And it was a hard pivot from Tolkien into <laughs> Ari Salvatore. But um, I was even more into that because the language was more accessible and I was a 12-year-old boy and that's who that's written for. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's only so much, at least me personally, only so much like Hobbit poetry that I could kind of consume in in my like, no, wait, I need action. Where's the action going on kind of situation at the time? Uh, A common topic that came up in my college studies was Mm -hmm. that Tolkien was a linguist, not a writer. (laughs) And um, 
at some point as I was reading the Forgotten Realms books, I realized or found out or read an aside or something that pointed out that these were 100% Dungeons and Dragons. I was like, wait, this is Dungeons and Dragons? This is what that game is? Holy shit. And I went to my dad and I was like, remember that game that you told me about that I didn't want to play? I want to play it. I'm all in now. Ooh. Yeah. And he had the basic edition, like red box set, like the original. Oh, yeah. And so my first experience ever with TTRPGs was my dad running, just me and him. He was playing like a like a DMPC through the Keep on the Borderlands, which oh. is a very well-known uh, original yep. basic D&D adventure. And uh, my first D&D character was named Duo. He was an elf. There were no classes. He was named after the Gundam Wing character. <laughs> I mean... I delight in hearing the the teen first jumps into into tabletop role playing games because spoiler alert you're not the only one who did who made choices uh, flavorful specific choices as well so you're you're in safe company I'm sure I'm not I actually went on to play incarnations of that character in third edition three point five and I think fourth <laughs> edition as well have you not for fifth edition yet. I've actually played very little 5th edition. Uh, That's I have, fair. I have run more 5th edition than I have played, mostly because one of the games that I run on our channel is 5th edition. And that was strictly because I was like, I should probably know something about this 5th edition thing. It seems kind of popular, but I've gotten the chance to play very little of it. I was very big into Pathfinder when 5th mm -hmm. edition came out. And uh, I don't know if you know anything about people who are very into Pathfinder when 5th edition came out. A bit. There's a prevailing attitude of why would I play fifth edition? I yeah. play Pathfinder. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, mm -hmm. We have some of them on our on our fifth edition podcast. In fact, yep. <laughs> I have uh, I have since changed my mind, but I was I was very strictly a, a Pathfinder player for a long time. So, how consistently after you kind of got that first kind of toss into the keep in the border keep on the borderlands? That's the one uh, through kind of on your in your dad. I got to ask also, were you playing with the little like figurines that he had and stuff? Like, did you get the full immersive experience? If I remember correctly, and I don't know if this came with the box set or not, but mm -hmm. there were physical maps and we did use the lead miniatures. I the only thing I don't remember is if they were maps that he drew himself. Yeah. Either in the 80s or before he was running this for me or if they came with the box set. But we did use. Awesome. How much were you playing kind of from there after like once you got which you realize, ah, this is what Dungeons and Dragons is. I would like to do some of that. Like what kind of over the years, especially pre capital C's content creator portion of your life, how much were you playing? What were you playing? Who are you playing with? TTRPGs have kind of always been a big part mm -hmm. of my life. When it started with basic D&D, we played a family game once a week. And during that period, my dad started seeing somebody. My parents were split up. My dad started seeing somebody who later became my stepmom. And she started playing with us as well. So it was very much a family bonding activity. It was, cool. I think my dad saw it as a way for us to kind of get to know each other. Yeah. I think another reason that he introduced me to it actually is because I was a very anxious kid. I, I have an anxiety disorder that I am much better at managing as an adult than I was as a 12-year-old. But playing TTRPGs, I think what really drew me into D&D for the first time was this idea that I could experience situations in a, in a very safe and made up way yeah. where all of the consequences that are constantly like assaulting my mind <laughs> at, in any given moment uh, don't matter. And 
for some reason, that just clicked correctly in my brain to the point where it was like, you don't need to be anxious about this. It's not real. And that kind of did the trick in a weird way. At least gave you gave you a lot of practice. That's that is lovely. Exactly. Um, so how long were, were you? Okay, God, I just already again seven hundred. We we've already reached the point where I have seven hundred questions of follow ups. So for your home game, do you remember? Was it like a lot of like homebrew stuff that your dad was doing, or was your dad doing like modules and and you know kind of pre written stuff? He was just doing Keep on the Borderlands, and I don't know if he added things onto it. He must have because we played it for a while. But as soon as that ended, I went out and I bought the third edition Dungeons and Dragons books with like my allowance. Um, actually, that's I probably convinced my dad to buy them for me. But I remember very distinctly, I bought the third edition books, like the Player's Handbook, the Dungeon Master's Guide, the first Monster Manual, and I took them home and I started reading them. And a month later, 3.5 came out. Oh, yep. that's like the, that is also Teenage Nathan's like actual nightmare of like, I paid money for this thing that is now, as far as I'm concerned, useless. Exactly. I was obsessed with those books. I, it took me a long time, actually, after that to get the 3.5 books. It was kind of like, third edition's fine. How different could it be, you know? But um, I would just read them cover yeah. to cover, and I didn't really have anybody to play with. And so I would just like read through it and make characters. I think by that point, my dad was not interested in learning how to play a new edition of Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. <laughs> Get that. So, so it was basically just me making characters. And then I went to summer camp and found a group of people who didn't know how to play Dungeons and Dragons, but knew enough about it to be excited about it. Hell yes. That's the best, some of the best to play with. Absolutely. Exactly. And I have very strong memories of us constantly getting in trouble. Because it's summer camp and you spend a lot of time moving from location to location. <laughs> and we would pack all of our books and things from location to location. And anytime we stopped, we would pull out the books and the character sheets and the dice and play as much as we could before the counselors told us that we had to move on. <laughs> oh. And so it got to a point where they were just constantly like, don't do that. Stop. Like, we're just <laughs> going to be here for five minutes. It's going to take you just as long to pack up as you're going to have to play. So just stop. And I don't think they ever actually succeeded. But from there, we started going over to each other's houses and playing a little bit here and there. And by the time I got to high school, I had a group that I played with after school on Fridays in the shop room. And that's how I met my best friend, actually. And that, hey. is, a, <laughs> that is a repetitive theme throughout my life is most of the friends that I have made, especially the ones that have endured this long, I met through TTRPGs. To take just a tiny, a teeny step back, when you were just like reading the books, you know, and you didn't have any any outlet for for all of all of the new knowledge that you suddenly had, do you remember or do you have any kind of like impression of what that was doing for you? Because you know, like like you said, playing you know playing with your family, obviously it's family bonding and a little bit of of kind of uh, self assurance and getting to express yourself in different ways and kind of distance yourself from the still very scary outside world. But, you know, when it was kind of just you and it was just a solitary activity, what made you keep going into the books other than, oh God, I spent my allowance on these. I better get something out of them. In hindsight, I was definitely playing solo TTRPGs before those were a thing. I mm -hmm. would make these characters and they were basically just blueprints for stories that I was writing in my head. 
and I would come up with these like elaborate backstories and connections between these characters. I made the first character that I ever made duo. I remade him. I gave him a last name this time. Ooh, and then character I, growth. Right, exactly. And I gave him siblings. And so I, he had a brother and a sister and I created this like entire family lore behind their family awesome. and just kind of imagined all of the different circumstances. And it was definitely fueled by this thought, like, I'm going to play these characters someday and it's going to be great. It's going to be so cool. They're going to be the coolest characters ever. <laughs> and I don't think I ever did get a chance to play most of them. I definitely played duo, but I don't think I ever got the chance to play the rest of them. And at this point, were you mostly the DM storyteller or would you guys switch off? Or like, how early did you kind of like step into the role of I'm the one who runs a lot of the games. At summer camp, we were not really, nobody was really the GM. We all had like DM yeah. NPCs. Like I would still play my character, even if I was the storyteller and technically we would trade off, but it was all just anime bullshit anyway. Hell so yeah. Really anybody could pick up where the other person left off. And we rarely actually consulted the rules. <laughs> yeah. I mean, same many times. Exactly. I will say by the time I got to high school, the people that I met in high school did not know how to play and were not interested in learning how to run games. So I was very much kind of forced into the DM role there. And I think I actually think that was the point where I started to realize that I enjoyed running games far more than I enjoyed playing them. I've, I've thought a lot about that. <laughs> uh, it is something that sticks with me. And I, I, in hindsight, I think the reason is I have ADHD, which was not diagnosed when I was a child, <laughs> shockingly. What? Uh, a, a guest, a TTRPG guest on Reckless to Talk, talking about their childhood of undiagnosed neurodivergence? What? It's crazy, what? right? What no. are the odds? It can't be all of us. No, <laughs> statistically. Hmm, interesting. But running a game is, the, is literally the only time in my life where I am 100% engaged in something. And I'm, my brain cannot think about something else or focus on something else or check my phone. It is the only time in my life that I am 100% on. There's always something happening. There's, I always have to be thinking about the next thing and what's going to happen. And that is such a rare feeling for me that it is honestly kind of addictive. Yeah, absolutely. And, and do, you still, do you still both kind of find yourself mostly being in and, and enjoying the storyteller role? And does it still... Does it still scratch kind of similar like creative and like base adrenal needs for you? Absolutely. Yes. There's a very clear chart where I feel like if you could monitor my heart rate, where it, like it <laughs> yep. spikes right before a game and then it evens out and then it spikes right after a game. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. I think that is also a relatively common, common vibe. Once you're in it, cool as a cucumber. Exactly. But bookended by high anxiety. So when did you kind of start getting an inkling of wanting to make games for public consumption? You know, either like, cool, and then we started doing it, or just like, when did that almost occur to you as an option? Relatively recently, and I could not tell you why this was, but as I grew up playing these games, like, you heard about Acquisitions Incorporated, yeah. which I think was the first one that I ever heard of. And then later on, I would start to hear about Critical Role and um, the others, the, the other big ones. But growing up in this hobby, there was this sort of prevailing attitude for a very long time of like, 
why would anybody want to watch somebody play D D? totally that sounds so boring like well, you could just play it yourself why would you want to watch somebody and it wasn't until just about the start of the pandemic or maybe a little bit before that i actually started listening to some actual plays like i mentioned we mostly played mm -hmm. pathfinder with my home group and somebody recommended the glass cannon podcast yep and started listening Absolutely. to that right and it immediately made total sense and i was like that's why this is very good okay cool <laughs> and i think eventually there was an ad there was an ad on glass cannon podcast for drunks and dragons now greetings adventurers yep and then i jumped to that and around the time of the pandemic somebody turned me on to dimension 20 i will say to this day i have not watched an episode of critical role i don't know what it is and at this point i'm afraid to ask you're also again you're not as alone as you would think, being uh, at least of polls from Reckless Talk guests. There are lots of people who are like, yeah, I watched or two or three episodes. It's like, cool, I get it. This is awesome. I got other stuff that I'm going to go do. So again, safe, safe space. Absolutely. Going into, you know, between the high school years and, you know, kind of like the launch of, of live from the apocalypse, uh, there are, are many years of gaming kind of in between, obviously. So were you still playing kind of consistently kind of throughout that? And were you still like storytelling as part of that? Were you still only playing D&D &D or kind of what, what were the things you were, were doing and kind of creating that built into what we, what we see before us today? It is a thing that I have never stopped doing, playing TTRPGs. It is a consistent theme throughout my life. And I got to college and I didn't know anybody. And I was a very anxious person and I had kind of had a hard time making friends. And then I, I found some people who were playing different games, not Dungeons and Dragons, not even Pathfinder at that point. This was actually pre-Pathfinder. And that was my first experience playing anything that wasn't Dungeons and Dragons. I got invited to play a game of the original edition of Scion by White Wolf Games. Hmm. That was my first non-D&D &D mm -hmm. system. And from there, we played Exalted and Mage the Awakening and all of the White Wolf games. There was not a wide selection D&D <laughs> yeah. alternatives at that point. Kind of right in the middle of the large, the large bottleneck, yeah. Exactly. We often talked about playing Shadowrun. We never successfully did it, which is also a common <laughs> theme. Um, and from there, I naturally got into... LARPing. There was a LARP group at my campus. We did dramatic, again, white wolf LARPs. They were usually Vampire the Masquerade or Werewolf or Hunters. And I became one of the GMs for that. And like, I don't remember what I was now, the vice president maybe <laughs> of the club. Did that pretty much the whole way through college. And that is how I met most of the other people involved in Live from the Apocalypse. Really? Yeah. Yeah, we stayed friends after college. We, we did all this LARPing together. We continued to play games at people's houses, branching out again from systems that were not Dungeons and Dragons, which I think is where some of the system diversity of Live from the Apocalypse comes from. We've always been a group that's very interested in trying new things and especially trying weird things. And <laughs> yeah, that was the, that was, these were the only people that I gamed with for a very long time, pretty much up until the point where we started doing content creation. You had kind of started again, kind of like you had these two forces in your life, right? Where you had a regular gaming group and you were now aware of actual plays. When did those things kind of all come together and what was the reasoning behind it? There were a couple of people that I was very close with, very good friends with actually Andrew, who is the other person who I guess sort of founded Live from the Apocalypse with me in its earliest incarnation. 
Andrew reached out and said, I've been listening to a lot of The Adventure Zone, and I think we could make a podcast. I want to run an Urban Shadows game, and I want us to turn it into a podcast. I've got it all figured out. Everybody is going to come to my house, and we're going to sit around a table. I bought a bunch of lavalier mics. He was like, we're going to do this seriously, <laughs> and it's going to be really good, and I'm going to edit it all, and we're going to release it as a podcast. And the day that we were supposed to get together and record in person was the day that lockdown was declared in the state where we all live. Yowza. <laughs> yep, literally the day. Of And so we had a conversation over Discord, which was like, should we still do it? And everybody was like, I'd feel safer if we didn't. Maybe we could move it online. So from there, we tried to move into everybody recording it locally on our various shitty computers over Audacity, because that was all any of us knew how to use. That, uh, this, I think, again, story of all, all pandemic podcasts is exactly. roughly that. And we... We decided we would send all of our files to Andrew and he would edit them together. And we did that, I think, maybe four times before we said, this is bad and we're <laughs> never going to release it. <laughs> Got it. I was going to say, wait, did I miss a podcast in there somewhere? Is there something? Okay, nope. Answers the question. Fair you enough. You did not. I think there may be some Audacity files still floating around on somebody's computer from that, but it will never see the light of day. Yeah, not even as a fun like, ooh, a Way back when, behind the scenes, like, no, it's been burned. We threw it in the, into the trash. It was very bad. I did not have an external microphone. I was not mm. the only one who didn't have an external microphone. Mm. It was truly awful. Mm -mm. Got it, got it, got it, got it. Yep. But we cool. suddenly had a lot of time on our hands. <laughs> and so we decided we were going to keep playing the game, and we were just not going to worry about recording it or turning it into a podcast. And so this group of us kept playing that Urban Shadows game, and I started running a Masks game around the same time. And that was the only time in my adult life that I've played two games unstreamed or anything every week. Yeah, right. Yep. I also had that and it was it was a time. <laughs> it really was. It really was. But at some point during that, I had made a Twitch channel. My partner was a Twitch streamer and I kind of knew enough about Twitch at that point that I was like, oh, I could probably do this. And I made a Twitch channel and I called it Live from the Apocalypse because we were in the middle of a pandemic and it felt like the world was ending. Yep. So during the pandemic, we were fundraising for Extra Life as a group, which is a thing that that group of friends did pretty much every year. But obviously we weren't content creators or anything. So it was just kind of posting on Facebook and being like, hey, do you want to donate to this? Do you not want to donate to this? Yeah. Actually, that is the story of how I drank an entire bottle of Malort. Oh, hey, well, now we get to the real, the real portion of the interview. Yeah, but... this is all about Malort. Um, <laughs> one of the donation incentives that I did was if you donated $20, I would film myself drinking a shot of Malort and post it on social media. And so I managed to get through a whole bottle. We raised a bunch of money. Whoa. A dubious honor. That's a, I mean, that's a lot of $20. So thumbs up there. <laughs> Eventually I had to get creative with it. So if you scour social media hard enough, you'll find videos of me luging a shot of Malort into my mouth with a slice of pizza and also drinking okay. it out of a shoe. I think I have seen the shoe one. You might I have. Think I think I've I've seen, sent I sent that maybe to you, have, Yeah, I think you have shown me the shoe one. I don't think I've seen the pizza one. But I mean, <laughs> I imagine it with perfect clarity. So mm -hmm. I, you know, I almost don't need to see the real one. Exactly. So I streamed this game on this channel, this Twitch channel that I had made and basically called it quits after that. It was kind of like, well, Extra Life is over. I don't think we're yeah. going to do anything else with this. We did the thing. Exactly. Later on, Andrew and I were talking and we were lamenting the fact that neither of these podcasts actually happened and it kind of sucked. And I was like, well, what if we 
just started streaming some stuff like not those games i don't think anybody wants to stream those games <laughs> but we could stream some other stuff and we could just do it for charity like the we were doing before and that was kind of the birth of the channel was that conversation something that immediately jumps out at me was that commitment to raising for charity and that kind of being like the tent pole of of your guys's channel and for context you don't not accept subs because i don't know if you you can you cannot that. turn that off as it turns <laughs> yeah. out but every single stream there is a charity in mind so why was that kind of a core tenant for you guys and like where did that really come into play especially because you you guys saw the adventure zone you were aware that you can do this in a way that is at least like you know just no you you play it and you have fun and that's kind of the extent of it so why was that kind of a core part of it for you guys that idea was really something that i was trying to champion in early conversations and obviously we had the experience where we were fundraising for extra life and that, would, yeah. that had been kind of the birth of the channel so it felt very natural but also i have spent a very large portion of my life in punk rock and diy spaces yeah. if you will and a thing that has come from that fortunately or unfortunately is a deep <laughs> seated fear and discomfort with monetizing mm -hmm. anything that I do ever for the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, it has gotten better, but unfortunately, this sort of sellout mentality is still deeply ingrained <laughs> in so many of us who grew up in that subculture. And for better or worse, I, I would say for better at this point, I'm very proud of the channel and I'm very mm -hmm. happy that we did make this decision. But at the time, I was like, I don't want to give Amazon or Jeff Bezos any money if we <laughs> yep. can avoid it. So what if instead of us making any money off of this, we just ask people to donate instead? We just ask people to give that money to a charity. And at first, it was a very informal process. It was kind of like whatever charity we thought was relevant at the time. Right. We switched between them a lot. Since then, it has definitely formalized into a very set system of we are supporting this organization until we raise X dollars. And then we are going to pick a new organization to benefit until we raise X dollars. Then that way we can kind of spread our support as much as we can without having a different group every week that we have to like introduce people watching to and encourage them to donate to. It's always been really interesting kind of for me to learn about the different approaches that people have for, I mean, for anything, but for this sort of thing and this sort of topic. You've been around in the space because when did Life from the Apocalypse uh, start? Like, what's the official birth date, I guess, that, that you guys were given? We officially started in 2021, but we did not really have any. Actually, that's not true. We officially started in 2020, but we really did not have any eyes on us until 2021. It took a very long time for us to find sort of the online TTRPG space. And before that, it was really just a handful of our friends who would watch us. Yeah. So you have been in said online TTRPG space for a good hunk of time, for as long as at least we have, certainly. And have, I imagine, you know, seen many other channels do things a lot of different ways, whether they have a core group of people, whether they have a huge cast of people that they kind of swap in, uh, what have you. But I think for the most part, all the ones that I'm familiar with, if they are not actively monetizing, are at least passively monetizing. You know, and you're like, yep, absolutely subs, or we have a Patreon or what have you. And now that you have been kind of creating your way and 
have been putting out the art, I guess, that you want to in the way you want to and kind of in the structure you want to versus how you kind of have seen other people. How do you, I guess, feel about the structure? That's a very basic ass way of putting it. But what does that process do for you? You know, kind of what does that offer you as a creator, you as a person, you as an, an owner, an operator of, of this channel? Well, one of the foundational principles of Live from the Apocalypse was that it is, and I think this is one way that we differ from other channels that do a lot of charity stuff, is that we decided very early on that we were going to be content first and fundraising second. It was about the games that we were playing and the stories we were telling and the people that we had in the games. And the charity fundraising was very much just a background thing. And the reason I think for that is because you see so many other people doing these big charity fundraisers mm -hmm. on Twitch. That's not normally what they do, but they decide, you know, for a week or a weekend or yeah. something like that, they're going to do a big uh, series of charity streams. And they raise thousands of dollars in one time, right? But that is because it is a, a very standalone thing. It is not the norm. It's a special event. And if you are always doing that on your channel, it's just not sustainable to keep it up. It's not sustainable to keep that same level of interest or enthusiasm going for the entire time. So instead, we kind of just decided that we would mention it at the top of the stream. We would mention it at the end of the stream. We would have things in the chat that would post about it, but we really weren't going to push it other than saying, this is what we would prefer for you to do. And we also hope that you enjoy this content that we are creating for you. So it's more of a, it's more of a slow trickle of donations than it is this massive burst of support. Yeah. And so because of that, I think it's a little more understated for us than it is for other charity things that you might see on Twitch. But it seems to be working. So yeah, yeah, I was gonna say you guys, I mean, even just since I have been aware of you and, you know, kind of jumping in streams every once in a while, it always seems like you have a new a new charity to support that you've already raised X amount for the last one and are on to the new one. So yeah, like you said, it seems to be working out just fine. Things I've been picking up definitely in that department. And I will say in the interest of full disclosure, we did end up having to admit that we would have to accept some level of financial support mostly because people kept asking and people kept subscribing, mostly with Prime subs. We try to encourage people to only do it if they have Prime subs, since they're already paying for Amazon Prime, for better or worse, and it's included for free in that subscription. When we got our first Twitch payout, which was like a year or two in because <laughs> yeah. we were telling people not to do it, we were kind of like, shit, what do we do with this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have, no, we have no frame of reference as to what to do with this $90 or whatever that, exactly. that Twitch has deigned to give us. And so we, um, we just donated it. We just gave it away to the organization that we were fundraising <laughs> for. But as we have been doing this for longer, our production quality has gotten better and we have started to use more software and more assets and things like that. And people kept asking us if there was a way that they could support us without Twitch subbing. And so at a certain point, we were like, well, all right, I guess we'll make a Patreon since people keep asking about this. So there is a Patreon. We do occasionally get Twitch payouts we have merch that we sell. And the policy that we put in place to handle all of that is we basically set what we call a support cap. And that support cap is the maximum cost of our operating budget, which includes like character art if we decide to start up a new game, software subscriptions, things like that. And any amount that goes over that support cap, we donate. I will say we don't make a lot of money still. We have not hit that support cap yet. <laughs> I mean, yes. <laughs> We are, we are very happy that we were able to afford a couple of new microphones mm -hmm. and can cover website hosting fees. 
I think we are about to use the sum total of the money that exists in the Life from the Apocalypse PayPal on character art for a new game. Hey, that's, hey. Cool. that's the best. So for you, and especially for this, coming from, you know, kind of a punk and punk music and DIY space and mindset, I have certainly heard you talk about and tweet about the role of capitalism, I guess, in art creation and in space and that kind of stuff. And obviously, I'm certainly interested in kind of any just general thoughts you have on that, but also of kind of your own your own process and mindset around figuring that out as that has evolved for you guys. You know, going from like, it's easy, just all donations. And we get one Twitch payout and ooh, uh, what do we do? Gross, cool, donate it. Like, versus kind of like working a little bit more in kind of the tradition, quote unquote, traditional system. What were your thoughts on that? And, and how did you guys kind of like come to that decision, knowing how, how important your charity roots are for you guys? I have been involved or at least adjacent to punk spaces for pretty much my entire life. Since I was in high school, there was a small punk <laughs> venue in the town where I went to high school and I would go and I would see my friends' bands there and occasionally larger bands would come through and play. And obviously that was the, the heyday of mall <laughs> emo and pop punk and all of that. Um, we were all big, you know, MCR fans before it was cool. <laughs> and um, I think one of the things that growing up in those spaces really teaches you is that you just do stuff. You just do stuff yourself. You don't have to have a degree or a formal education or training or even be particularly good at any of it. There are plenty of bands that have achieved some level of success or at least personal satisfaction that are not yeah. good at playing instruments and are not good at singing. And that sort of instills a very particular mindset in you. And I think that is definitely carried over into Life in the Apocalypse. I do a lot of the behind the scenes work and a lot of the technology. And I am not a person who has mm -hmm. ever been good at that before. But when we started doing this, I was like, I think I'm just going to learn how to do all of this. I think I'm just going to teach myself. Yeah. Pre-pandemic, I was a freelance music journalist and a music photographer. And those were also just things that I had decided to do one day. Mm -hmm. And there are enough websites and blogs out there that cover punk music that if you start emailing people and saying, hey, can I write for you? Hey, can I take pictures for you? They'll say, sure, send me some stuff. Nobody's getting paid for any of it, of course. But I just bought a camera and taught myself how to edit photos and started doing it. Obviously, I had the writing experience. So when we started making content, I guess, when we started playing TTRPGs on the internet, there was all of this background information of like, well, you have to learn OBS, well, you have to learn about the equipment that you're using, well, you have to learn how stream elements works and, and all this other stuff. And I was like, well, I'll just learn how to do that stuff. I'll just learn how to edit video. And um, another part of my background is that I was a public librarian for a very mm -hmm. long time. I worked in public libraries for 10 years. I was a public librarian for about five or so years. And that involves a lot of teaching adults how to use technology. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that also carried over into running Life in the Apocalypse because I have taught other people who are associated with us, other storytellers on our channel, some of the other organizers, how to stream, how to use OBS, how to edit YouTube and VODs and things like that. And that is um, that has lightened the load and that has definitely carried over. But I think like at its core, there are a tremendous number of parallels between DIY spaces and TTRPG spaces. I mean, there have never been, you know, more 
indie publishers than there are today, more people who are just kind of literally doing it themselves and writing zines. Like, I think there's a zenathon going on right now. Yeah, zine month right now. Zine Absolutely. month is happening right now. And that is not a term that I ever thought I was going to hear outside <laughs> of like a venue yep, on a right. Saturday night. And, you know, same with like people doing homebrew and people who are streaming AP content, but don't necessarily have a dedicated audience. Everybody is just kind of doing the same thing that people in punk spaces do, which is putting your art out there and seeing if anybody likes it. So you as as someone who has been involved in that in that mindset, I guess, for a long time, how do you find the experience of just putting your shit out there? Like you had a lot of practice doing it, certainly. So was there a hump that you had to get over? Is it still pain? Or like, you know, kind of what's your experience with taking that leap and just saying, here's what we did. Do whatever you want with that information. For us, for me in specific, I don't want to speak for anybody else. It's very easy. Uh, it's very easy to put things out there, especially things that we have created. Like I said, the the scary part is the before and after, but during it, I couldn't care less about, you know, how weird it is or if somebody likes it because that's kind of the norm. You know, sometimes you're the only person in a room watching a band play and they still play and sometimes they still have the time of their life and that's obvious. Mm -hmm. And if you are enjoying what you're doing, if you are enjoying performing and doing the thing, it shows. And so another fundamental principle, I would say, of Life from the Apocalypse that we say all the time to each other is we would be doing this anyway. If we weren't streaming this, these are still the games we would be playing. These are still the stories we would be telling. These are probably still the same people that we would be playing games, with, <laughs> especially if we were lucky enough to have the opportunity. We try not to take ourselves too seriously, and we try just to focus on having fun because I think that's what people respond to. Yeah, for sure. What part about the act of creation works for you, especially you know someone who who is very focused on I am doing the thing right now, and that's when it's best is doing it. And then whatever happens before and after, cool and great. But what you know, kind of fires does that does that stoke for you? So we haven't talked about this before, which is it's gonna it's gonna come out of left field. But I I grew up spending half of the time with my dad because, like I mentioned, my parents were split up, mm -hmm. and for a while, my dad was a professional improviser. Fascinating. Um, my dad was part of a, a touring improv group that was very in hindsight, very DIY and punk rock, they would sort of just get into a van and travel across the country cool. and perform improv for people. And it's kind of crazy to think about in hindsight. Honestly, I don't think about it much anymore because he is so far divorced from that <laughs> life now. But that's kind of an environment that I was raised in, right? Like every yeah. Sunday we would go and we would have brunch at this little bar and like all of my dad's friends would be there. And they were all these crazy improv people who like were on a lot of drugs because it was the 90s but uh, I didn't know that as a child and so that that kind of spontaneity was kind of ingrained into me and that love for improv and like the craft of improv and that's something that I have done throughout my life but it it's not a format that I really find myself drawn to very often I enjoy the act of it but for me that sort of sense of telling a story of being live of having an audience and not having a plan that is such a rewarding and interesting challenge because there's no expectation one way or another. There's no expectation that you yeah. make people laugh. There's no expectation that you'd be funny. There's no mm -hmm. expectation that you'd be dramatic. 
you can be all of those things and you can be none of those things. And you can just let the chips fall where they may. So are you someone who tries to go as little planned as possible? Are you, are you pretty much a seat, seat of your pants kind of storyteller? I am. I have a very set formula for how I plan games. I think about, and, and a lot of this is involuntary, I should say. Most of my games start with like, I just think of something cool. And then I'm like, that'd be really cool. And then okay. my brain starts latching onto it. And it's like, I could turn that into a game. Yeah, I should okay. turn that into a game I'm going to. So normally what comes out of that is where I want the story to start, right? What is the first scene? Because my brain also works very cinematically. What is the first scene we see? What kicks off this story, right? And then from there, I think about what is the overarching story that I'm trying to tell? And where do I want it to end? What do I think would be a cool ending for this particular notion of a game? And whatever happens in the middle happens. The beauty of that format, though, is that you can pad the middle for as long as you want. As long as people are interested, <laughs> you can just keep doing thing after thing and side story after side story. And then eventually when people say, I'm getting kind of bored of this, or like you start losing interest in it, you say, all right. And then you just shift it into endgame. Yep. And usually the endgame has changed by that point because of the decisions right. the characters have made. <laughs> Sometimes you get to preserve that initial cool thought. Sometimes you think of something that's even cooler. But yeah, for that middle section... I very much like to just play fast and loose and see what happens. And now, a word from our sponsor. Hi, everyone. David here with The Midroll. We hope you've been enjoying the episode so far. If you want more of the Reckless Attack crew, come join the community on Discord. The link is in the show notes of the episode and on our website, recklessattack.com. If you want to support the show, head on over to Patreon, where you can get access to our behind-the-screen talkback series, as well as our new series, Reckless a Snack, where we eat snacks and chat about the question of the day. As always, if you like the show, be sure to tell a friend about it too. Thanks so much for listening. And now, back to the episode. So this, you know, just kind of like thinking of, of the stories that you guys are telling, but also the stories that you enjoy as someone who has been consuming and making and writing and thinking about stories for a long time. Are the stories that you like to create and the stories you like to consume, are those different or are those, are those kind of the same for you? I would say that they are connected. The stories that I like to consume absolutely influence the stories that I like to create. Yeah. Most of my games, and I would speak for my fellow Live from the Apocalypse people as well and say that almost always one of us will consume an interesting piece of media, whether mm -hmm. it be somebody else's actual play or a TV show, or we'll read a book and you just can't stop. There's something about TTRPGs, right? Where yeah. it gives you this brain worm where it just clicks in your head and your head is like, how would you make that into a game? What system would you use? What do you think the overarching narrative of that would be? That's, that'd be kind of cool, right? For me, starting off, a lot of what I wrote when I was doing writing when I was trying to be mm -hmm. a writer 
was influenced by the media that I loved growing up as a child and as an adult. And now that we are doing more, now that I am doing more TTRPG stuff and have more opportunities to tell my own stories, I find myself going back to those old ideas mm-hmm. that did not work out as novels or short <laughs> stories or whatever. Totally. And exploring them in more of a collaborative storytelling environment with people that I respect immensely and um, seeing if they work that way. So it all kind of comes full circle back to our influences and the media we consume, right? And I don't know that there's a way that any of us can turn that off. Are there any like themes that like really stick out to you that you find yourself either exploring or even just, you know, kind of like using, I guess, you know, kind of having as part of kind of your, your story design process, uh, especially now that you're putting out a lot of them and having to do so rapidly in, uh, you know, a, a weekly or multiple times a week basis, say. I think the obvious through line that a lot of people would point to and that I also can't help but acknowledge is that um, capitalism is always the bad guy. <laughs> and that is the sort of the grounding principle of every game that I have run, probably every game that I will run. <laughs> Another one is telling what I like to call gray stories, where everyone is fucking up a little bit, right? Like, I wouldn't say that it is to the degree where everyone's a bad person. That genre certainly exists. Those pieces of media certainly exist. And that's not really a story that I'm interested in telling, but I am very interested in telling stories where everyone is fucking up a little bit and the degree to which they're fucking up impacts the story and where it goes. Yeah. But it can also be very heartwarming and it can be very funny. And there's a lot of different shades within that gray that you can mess with. Do you find yourself when you are putting together these stories of people who are some amount of fuck-ups, are you someone who likes to see it get better and see maybe they fuck up a little bit less tomorrow? Or are you someone who's like, this person will keep fucking up? Maybe in different ways, but will keep fucking up or fuck up worse. What's the trajectory of your fucking up in the story? <laughs> it's very interesting. I don't, I don't have any skin in that game, I would say. Mm-hmm. I am far more interested in seeing the players' interpretations of those fuck-ups and seeing how Mm -hmm. they interpret them. I have run games many, many times. I've had sessions of some of the games that we play on Live from the Apocalypse where I put in an NPC who is fucking up in a very specific way that I think is (laughs) maybe not harmful or kind of funny, and they hate them. (laughs) They instantly despise them, and they say, this is the worst person we've ever met, and we don't ever want to have to interact with them again. And I'm like, oh fascinating okay <laughs> interesting well they're um they're gonna be around for a while and so we'll see how that plays out but i i am far more interested in in that reaction i think and sort of basing the direction of what follows off of that feedback so when you have an idea that excites you right that is that your worm that is just like i have to turn this into a game Do you know what flips that switch for you? Or is it just something about it just kind of speaks to you as like, this is something interesting? Or is there like, ah, here's what I look for. or Here's what like, I know lights up my brain consistently when I'm looking for stories or passively consuming them and and something kind of turns on. I wish I could say that there is a way that I could interpret that or control it. Um, Unfortunately, there is not. Vampire Records was literally born from a joke that I made on the internet, 
where I was thinking about Empire Records, a movie that I mm-hmm. love very much from the 90s. <laughs> Which and is a movie filled with people fucking up quite a bit. It sure is. <laughs> and I think I tweeted, Vampire Records, is that anything? <laughs> <laughs> And people replied with, you know, various levels of joking, but I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I was like, you know, it'd be really funny is if there was a store called Vampire Records and it was kind of a riff on Empire Records, but it was also kind of like a different 90s property, maybe Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Indeed. (laughs) And then I couldn't stop thinking about it and was like, this would be a great game. This would be a very good idea for a game. It's just a group of record store employees and they fight evil. So you guys, you guys put out a lot of shows. Uh, you guys are live from the apocalypse somewhere between what, like two and four times a week, I think, or something like that. On average, three. Three is our normal uh, lift for a week. And I guess first, how many of those games are you involved in? And I'll paint with a broad brush there. So I will say two of those slots are Wednesday night slots. We we tend to do alternating weeks, right? Mm-hmm. So we have games Sunday nights, we have games Tuesday nights, and we have games Wednesday nights. And sometimes we throw in a few more here or there, depending on what's going on. But the Wednesday night slots are reserved for a, a series of games called Wildcard Wednesdays, which alternates the storyteller and the system and the players. And usually goes for about three episodes or so. That was what Vampire Records was. So those games I am sometimes involved in, I am sometimes not involved in those of our Sunday night games and our Tuesday night games, of which there are four, I am involved in three of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, got it. <laughs> and I'm currently involved in both of our Wildcard Wednesday games as well. So that is five, I guess. And how much of like, do you, because it's obviously live, it's live streamed. So not as much, you know, kind of like after the fact editing or whatnot, but are you doing like, quote unquote, all the tech stuff? you guys as well of setting up the calls of doing the overlays of doing all that kind of stuff i am not um we don't really do a producer model like a lot of other Mm -hmm. channels do up until now it has really just been myself and andrew who have been running games even though a lot of other people have been involved as players or have joined in with our like one-off fundraisers or things like that i will say that i have stepped into a producer role for when we've done like big extra life fundraisers that last weekend or with our 12 games of Hazmus um, holiday fundraiser where we did 12 games in 12 days. But as far as our regular content is concerned, I will say that I do build most of the assets and the setup for the streams. I build them in my OBS and then I export them to Andrew and he puts them in his OBS. And then really all he has to do is click go live. And that is the model that we're going to be using moving forward as more people start running games on the channel as well. So one of the goals is really just to A, make it as easy as possible on everybody involved so that you don't always have to find a producer for the game that you want to do. You can just say, I want to stream a game and I can say, cool, I will teach you how to do it. And at this point, that maybe takes like an hour or two hours. It's honestly not bad. Yeah, I've been very surprised at kind of the low barrier for entry that there actually is for like going live on Twitch. You can really just, it doesn't take all that much doing. In case anyone listening needs that push, there's YouTube videos. It's not It's not so bad. Very much kind of a Pandora's box situation, but well, yeah, you can do it. <laughs> right. It gets, yeah. <laughs> I mean, oof, that's that's a discussion for another another episode, I think, probably. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, it's, the, it's the like reckless to talk after dark where it's like we're three drinks in right. and we're all just like, well, I'll tell you how it really, the real, how it really goes. But you guys, you guys do rotate a lot of, a lot of systems, a lot of stories. Um, again, sounds like even more GMs. But 
go through tons of different you kind of stories and storytelling vehicles. You guys, as of this recording, we were using like the 1990s or 2000s Angel slash Buffy role-playing game for Empire Records. You guys have a Yu-Gi-Oh! stream happening. I think you still have a Pokemon stream going. We do. And that's like literally, literally just right now actively. And I know you guys have played some D&D, all kinds of things, and tons of like homebrew stuff from people on your channel who have made stuff. So I know you guys had been playing a lot of different games. It's kind of the coming together origin story. But was that also kind of part of your channel vision, so to speak? Or is that just something that that kind of happened as you needed to tell more stories? It has definitely always been something that is present. Life from the Apocalypse is our first foray into any type of content creation. I think it's safe to say for anybody involved in the channel, I think that is largely true. But the people that are now largely the organizers behind Live from the Apocalypse would organize these gaming weekends pretty regularly, at least once or twice a year. And they would last the entire weekend. Normally, somebody would host them at their house and people would just say, I'm going to run this system. And then people could sign up to play in that system. Um, and we would <laughs> every uh, the Friday night of each of those weekends, we would have what we called a keg LARP. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking sold. Which sign was, me up exactly what it sounds like where we would um largely the group that ran the larps when we were all in college together would put together some kind of silly framework for a story usually a very flimsy one that we fully expected to devolve long before we actually got to the conclusion of it and there would be copious amounts of alcohol there would be kegs available we were in our early to mid-20s at this point i should specify but during those weekends people would just run whatever they wanted The, the tone of it was very not serious and i think that really introduced a lot of us to new systems. I, I remember that I ran I ran a Fate Hack Steven Universe game. <laughs> and I ran a Dread game. I ran a Dread game about a group of people attending the Warped Tour <laughs> that then suddenly found themselves transported to the gates of hell. I, yep. Yeah. Yep. One of the classic, you know, Hero's Journey style adventures. Absolutely. Right. So the the unhinged and very not serious nature of those weekends, I think, kind of just introduced us to how fun it could be to make that kind of content, to not take yourselves too seriously and to try out new and weird systems. Because you guys go through so many systems, so many stories are rotating through stuff, rotating through cast members. Do you is there any just kind of story that you feel is particularly kind of like emblematic of the kinds of knowing again knowing that it's one of dozens of shows easily is there a good like kind of jumping on point for people just to kind of say oh hey here's here's what these often feel or look like Mm, those are i think those i think i have two different answers to that yeah because there's the question of what what do i think is most emblematic of like my particular storytelling style and like what i do at live from the apocalypse and i think the answer to that one would probably be the first game that I ever streamed on the channel, once it became like a, a concentrated effort, a real thing, which was called Nephilim. And it was a gritty, near future sci-fi game, very anti-capitalist in its nature, about how corporations had taken over the world, the wealthy and elite founded moon colonies and basically withdrew from, you know, the solar system entirely. And there was no magic, there was nothing supernatural about it whatsoever. 
And it was just the story of this crew of scrappers. They were part of what's called the Scrappers Union. They piloted a spaceship, they collected space debris, and they got embroiled in this massive conspiracy and conflict with a group of anti-technology Christian terrorists. <laughs> um, Don't mind me just frantically jotting down notes over on the side here. Don't ever just ignore me. Carry on. The caveat to that game is that it was the first one that I ever streamed on the channel. So you can you can chart a clear progression in quality as I was learning how to do TTRPGs good on the, the first one. Cannot yeah. stress enough. The first one. But that I'm I'm still very proud of that story. And it's also the first it's also the only campaign that I have finished on the channel because all of the ones that followed after that are still ongoing. So it has a it has an ending and I'm very happy with the ending. It has a beginning and I'm very happy with the beginning and it gets better. I promise it gets better if you start <laughs> watching it. As far as what is most emblematic of the channel as a whole, I think, or, or rather, what do I think would be sort of the best representation of what we do? Recently, and I think this is not a brand that we were that we are going to be able to divorce <laughs> ourselves from anytime soon. Recently, we have gotten a reputation deservedly for having a lot of nostalgia-based, weird TTRPG content that we have we have talked about a couple times. So I, I think what's probably most emblematic of Life in the Apocalypse as a whole is our Pokemon TTRPG that you alluded to earlier, mm -hmm. uh, Missing Numbers, which started as a sports anime game uh, about a, a failing gym in a town in the Pokemon universe. And the group of trainers who came together, uh, an unlikely group of trainers who came together to try to keep it alive and restore the legacy of it, and is now dissolved into eldritch horror. Yep. As we are encountering the, yep. the missing numbers. Um, and we are solidly in eldritch <laughs> horror territory at this point. But I think that is what kind of started the brand. So I'm kind of curious, just kind of looking holistically over, over your time at Life in the Apocalypse for what is yet two two-ish years mm -hmm. and change. So kind of first, the the easier question, I guess, is what do you hope kind of moving forward for you guys? Like what is your goal, especially knowing how clear your guys' kind of like founding values are of it being, you know, charity based, of it being like we're having fun, content first, etc. Like, what are you guys hoping for? What are you guys building towards um, or or anything? And if the answer is like, we want to do less, that also technically counts as a, as a future vision. Our only real goal is to keep doing this for as long as we can. And if I could give one piece of advice for making actual play content on the internet, not that I'm remotely qualified to do that, but if I could give one piece of advice, I would say that it's, don't be afraid to walk away from it. Like, don't be afraid to just shut it down one day and call it quits for, for a variety of reasons. The reason doesn't really matter, but you save yourself a lot of heartbreak and struggle and turmoil if everybody just agrees, hey, this could stop tomorrow and we would still be friends. We would still hang out. We would still play games together. We just wouldn't do it publicly anymore. And this was a lot of fun, but that's, that's over with now. As long as we can keep doing this, we would love to do it. We are happy to do it. It feels good to play games and raise money for charity and to know that people enjoy the content that we put out. And we have met so many amazing people through this and had so many opportunities that we uh, never expected that we would have as a result of this. Um, we've done panels at conventions and like we put on a virtual con and that's not anything that we thought we were going to do when we started mm -hmm. off. Um, we've raised, I think, 
$15,000 for various yeah. charities, like charities that combat police brutality, Planned Parenthood, ocean conservation groups, international rescue groups. We're currently raising money for the First Nations Development Institute. And that's just, that's more than we ever thought we were going to be able to do. And that kind of brings me into maybe the bigger question, which was, how has that experience impacted you? Have you changed as a, as a person, as a creator, as anything, I guess, through, through the process of being a capital C content creator on the capital I internet? You know, what, what's that been like for you and are you different now because of it? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, not because people watch us do it or anything like that, but because we, because we did it, because uh, mm -hmm. I do it all the time. I have learned through doing this so much about what I can do, what I am capable of doing. It is fascinating how much I have accomplished just in terms of what I have learned how to do and how I've implemented it for the channel and the games that I run on the channel. All of that, I think, is really just because I like, I think I learned through this exactly what I could do when I stopped trying to accomplish what I've been told that I should accomplish, right? Yeah. Like you grow up and if you're, if you like telling stories, if you're good at telling stories, they say, well, you should be a writer. We're told that there's like, there's a clear path to what defines success, right? If you want to do X, you should do Y. And that is how you know that you have been successful at it is when you have achieved Y. Mm -hmm. And just by focusing on something that I am genuinely interested in, which is playing games, telling stories, and being able to do that publicly in an interesting way, I have honestly completely surprised myself with what I have been able to learn and accomplish. I think in another way that maybe we don't talk about as much and maybe, and, and is definitely not as entirely possible, it divorces you from your real life, right? In, in a strange way, like I regularly run, we, like you said, we do this three to five times a week maybe, and I regularly run into people that I just, I know out there in the world that I, I am friends with. Maybe I haven't seen them since the pandemic because that fucked everything up. But, um, it, you know, and they, they say like, what have you been up to? And you stop and you think about it. How do you begin to explain any of yeah. this? So you just say, oh, not much. But in reality, you're living this whole other life. You just don't yes. know how to verbalize it to anybody who's not involved in it. And yeah, that's a very strange and surreal Deeply thing. enmeshed in the, in the lifestyle right? such, as, such as us. Is there anything that you would tell past Will? You know, you now get to send a message back or several, a series of messages back, just as you're about to launch Live from the Apocalypse, about to have that first uh, very good, very rough uh, session that you're streaming and kind of go through all the bumps and bruises. Is there anything that would be meaningful, I guess, to kind of share with your past self? Well, see, now we're talking about time travel. And by giving my past self advice, I might actually do the exact opposite of what I'm intending to do. And just, I mean, little fuck ups, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, oops, That's the, oh, no, we've launched another life in the apocalypse stream. Exactly. I am very proud of what we have done. And I am very happy with the way things have turned out. And we have had, I think, an astonishingly easy run of it, to, mm -hmm. to be completely honest. I mean, if I could go back and give myself a piece of advice, a lot of it would involve like learning how to mix audio better or like, hey, don't fucking do this through Discord. There are better <laughs> ways um, and things like that. Don't pay for Google Meet for, you know, a year when there are free <laughs> ways to do this out there. But I think honestly, 
we kind of were lucky enough and put the thought into to get it right very early on. You know, like the the infrastructure for what we built for Life in the Apocalypse has largely endured, even as some things have changed since we started. But like by the time we went live for the first time, we had the same, you know, community Discord server that we have now. And it was built and it was set up pretty much exactly the same way. And some things have changed. We had all of the social media. We were doing all of the social media. We have gotten better at it. I have gotten better at it. I do the social media. <laughs> I think a good example of this is, is from the first time we went live, I was dead set that we were going to have uh, closed captioning, mm -hmm. that we were going to have a way for the stream to have closed captioning. So even if you go back to the earliest streams, ooh, I think, I hope <laughs> I'm not going to be proved wrong here, but I think if you go back to the earliest streams, we had closed captioning in one way, shape, or form, and we have gone through like three different iterations of that before <laughs> we have arrived on the one that actually works that we use today. But we did our best for a very long time, and I think those ideals that we had in place when we first yeah. started Live from the Apocalypse uh, have endured and have served us well. I will say that if I can give if I could give a piece of advice to not maybe past Will, <laughs> but somebody else who is thinking about I mean, embarking. I'll allow it, I guess. Right? We're talking about time travel, sure. <laughs> Just say it anyway. I, I would say the one thing I have learned that is very important is if you are going to start a thing with people, if you are going to make content with people or start a group with people, you should do it with people who are going to argue with you. <laughs> and you should do it with people who are going to argue with you that you know you can come back from that argument with, that you can have that argument, you can maybe yell at each other, you can maybe call each other stupid, and then like at, you know your relationship is going to survive that. But it's, it's so valuable, and I can't overstate this, it is so valuable to just have the ability to have conversations where you are dead set on something, you think it is super important, and somebody else says, I don't think that's the most important thing. I don't think we should do that at all, actually. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And then you have a back and forth and maybe you get mad, maybe you yell at each other, but at the end of the day, maybe you're like, God damn it, they were right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a minute. I'll get back to you when I'm less heated, but all right, fire. Yes, absolutely. Do you, and this is, this is, uh, maybe, maybe too, too left field touchy feely question. But like you guys, like, like we've talked about, you have a Discord server, you have a pretty big stable of people who want to come and play games and run games and do all kinds of stuff with you guys. You've made connections with people on the internet. You've been in meaningful, real connections with people all over the place. Does that scope of, of human connection, is that something that like hits you often or that like you kind of have this space to consider? Or are you too close? Or it's just like, no, we just all play games together. Or also, Nathan, no, that's too hippy-dippy. Fuck off. I mean, it, it, it absolutely blows my mind that we know as many people that we do, that as many people have gotten involved with the channel now as there are. I don't think when we started off and did this for the first time that we ever thought it would look like what it does today. But I would also say, I think, and maybe this is kind of the inverse of the touchy-feely question that you were asking, but I have spent once again, just such a long time in punk spaces. And I have seen what has sort of recently been making its way through the TTRPG community happen time and time again in that same punk community, which is mm -hmm. that, you know, there are bad actors. There are people that are going to take advantage of you and potentially, you know, with one fell swoop, unfortunately, kind of ruin everything that you have built. 
And a common thing, I, I have talked about this a lot, but a common thing that you hear in punk and in DIY is this concept of family, right? People talking about how this is a, a safe space and it's a family and it's just, it's not. And it's never, it's never going to be. And it, and it shouldn't be. It, it genuinely shouldn't be. There should be space for everyone who wants to be involved, but is not your family. And you don't know somebody unless you know them. And even, and even then. <laughs> and even then, you should, you should Just, really be careful about yeah, it. Yeah, protect yourselves, you know, et cetera. So, I mean, I guess the, the more technical answer to that is just like, we don't do, uh, but Life from the Apocalypse, we don't do open casting calls, generally speaking. Sometimes we do if we're doing like a big fundraising push and it's like a series of one shots or something like that. For long-term campaigns, I don't think we're generally very interested in playing games or having games run by people that aren't our friends. And I want to be clear that friends is a is a term that evolves, right? Right. You yes. can become friends with people that you don't know. Strangers become friends. But as far as like as far as our community is concerned, we are always very upfront and very clear ab about how much we appreciate everybody and how happy we are that they are in the community and that they support us. But like when you have a platform, you have a responsibility to yep. use it correctly and to try to keep people safe and also to just make sure people are having fun. Just make sure it's fun. So thinking about the people aspect, the friend aspect, are there any kind of like any individuals, any channels, any people that have been particularly influential for you? And again, they don't need to be in the tabletop role-playing game space, but just as someone who has helped shape your worldview, your personhood, et cetera. 100%. First of all, uh, talking about the journey of learning how to actually do this and do it well, um, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that um, Justin Crane from No Fame Podcast, I wouldn't know yep. half of the stuff that I know about OBS or audio or anything without his incredible patience and his willingness to just sit with me in a Discord yep. uh, call for hours answering questions yep. over and over again. Have also experienced that uh, for uh, reckless to talk, in fact. <laughs> yep. So Justin is the only reason that anything on the channel sounds or looks good, including the podcast. And I think the other one, the big sort of spiritual influence has nothing to do with TTRPGs. But I, for a very long time, I was very embroiled and involved and obsessed with a comedy show called The Chris Gethard Show. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I don't know if anybody listening to this is going to be familiar with it. Yeah. But it started off as a public access talk show in Manhattan. In a, it, was a, it was a New York public access show that was 100% um, a talk show. And it was completely unscripted, obviously. Anybody could call in. Anybody could say anything. It was very much informed by, you know, an improv mindset. A lot of the uh, UCB folks were involved in it. And Chris Gethard himself was involved with UCB for a very long time. And I think, thinking about the influence that that had on me and on Life from the Apocalypse, I always come back to like the Matthew Mercer effect, right? Which we, we talk about all the time. And we don't really call it the Brendan Lee Mulligan effect, but the <laughs> same thing kind of applies, right? Like mm -hmm. holding yourself to this impossible standard because there is editing involved there are budgets involved and you it's so hard to maintain this like realistic scope of what it is that you are doing and this impossible standard that you are trying to live up to that has yeah. you know media companies behind it and a shit ton of experience absolutely that also gets glossed over absolutely. it's like those those dudes have been doing what they're doing what they've been doing for a long time right 
exactly. But spiritually, I like to think Live from the Apocalypse is much, much closer to the Chris Gethard show model where it's just like, we're mm-hmm. going to go live and we're <laughs> going to see what happens. <laughs> and nobody knows. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Anything could happen. But hopefully it'll be funny and maybe sad, but in a healthy and wholesome mm-hmm. way. And hopefully you will come out the other end having felt things that you did not feel before. Will, I have um, dire tidings for you. Because it is now time for the much-feared Reckless Atok lightning round gauntlet. Oh, God. Have you taken the appropriate spiritual precautions going in? I did provide the list going in, and I know it's extensive, but it is important, so I hope I hope you are prepared. There was a list? Question one. Is your glass half full or half empty? Boy, um, my glass is a Nalgene bottle covered in stickers. <laughs> so I don't know if it's full. I don't know how empty it might be, but when it runs out, I'll refill it. What excites you creatively, spiritually, and or emotionally? I think kindness, honestly. Um, People putting in the work to be kind. Um, I think there's maybe this perception in society that kindness is is very easy or it's Mm -hmm. the bare minimum. But in reality, if we're honest with ourselves, it's incredibly hard work to maintain being kind, especially today, especially with the way that the world is. It's hard. It takes effort. And I think also equally important is it's important to know when to stop being kind because it should not be a um, it should not be an eternal thing. There should be qualifiers and check-ins, and sometimes sometimes you got to stop. I would also say just hearkening back, I'm I am often creatively inspired as we've talked about a couple times now about by action, right? What happens in the middle when you're when you're doing the thing? What does not excite you? creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Everything before and after doing the thing. <laughs> what is your favorite sound? I think I think a banjo. I really mm-hmm. like banjos. Um, I think they sound very cool. And mm-hmm. um, deep, deep, deep in my heart, I have a deep appreciation for the folk punk genre. <laughs> if there's a weird crossover for anybody out there listening, I have a ramshackle glory tattoo. Yes, it is the ramshackle glory tattoo. So if you know what that means, then you know. What sound do you hate? Oh, I feel so bad about this one. I think um, <laughs> keyboards clicking. I think uh, I think mixing audio and editing podcast has just given me a deep and abiding <laughs> hatred of the sound of keyboards, unfortunately. What's your favorite word? Probably Fuck. Probably fuck. I'm sure somebody has said that before, but like you can just say it in so many different ways. You can say, you can use it as an exclamation. You can say, uh, you can say it angrily. You can say it excitedly. You can say it in awe of someone. Um, you can use it to curse someone out. I think it's, it's maybe the most uh, utilitarian word that we have. What is your least favorite word? I think um, unproblematic. I don't think anyone is truly unproblematic. And I think if that is a word that you subscribe to, I think it's an indicator that you should look deeper. What 
tabletop role-playing game or D&D or whatever, monster or antagonist, have you not faced or run that you would love to? We talked about how I've played very little 5e, mm -hmm. uh, and I realize that it's basically a meme at this point, but I, I, I want to face Strahd. <sighs> I do. No. Fuck that. It's, I mean, yes, there are a lot of Strahd memes, but fuck that. Strahd is still sick as hell. That is a, that is a, a they're all correct opinions. You know, that's the whole point yep. of the lightning round. But that's, that's a correct opinion. <laughs> I, I want to face the hot vampire, man. I don't know what we'll yeah. do, but I want it, I want it to happen. What is your favorite adventure of all time? And this can be broadly interpreted as one that you've written, one that you've run, one that you've been in, one that you watched someone else do. It can be 1999's adventure movie, The Mummy. Whatever adventure is, what's your favorite? How did you know it was The Mummy? No. Um... <laughs> That's because it's deep down, isn't it everyone's favorite? Everybody adventure? says The Mummy, yeah, absolutely. Um, so the one that comes to mind is um, during the pandemic, sort of, pre or concurrent with LFTA starting up, I ran a masks game. And that masks game was called Generation H. And to tie it back into other parts of our conversation, it was based on, a, on an idea for a novel that I had started working on and never finished. And I was like, well, let's see how this works as a TTRPG. The reason why that game is so meaningful to me, it, it was the precursor to our current podcast, Academy H. Yep. Academy H is in the same universe that we built collaboratively over the course of Generation H. 10 years or 15 years in the future. I can't remember exactly how far now, but I just was not done with that world by the time that game ended. And I wanted to try to see what a new group of people who hadn't helped build it did in that, that sandbox. But the reason why that game is so meaningful to me beyond that is because um, one of my best friends came out while I was running that. She had been playing a character named Austin, a boy character for most of the campaign when we started off. And Austin was the beacon playbook. And if you know anything about masks, the beacon is like the heart of the team. They're kind of mm -hmm. supposed to bring everybody together. I don't know if you know this about the pandemic, but it was very hard to be uh, a hopeful <laughs> beacon <laughs> during that time period. So she was really struggling at the time. And she came to me and she said, I think you should kill Austin. I think it would further the narrative. I think it would be an interesting, like dramatic moment. And I was like, I think maybe... What if we retire Austin and then you can make a new character? And we found a way to explain Austin leaving, which she, I, I, I asked her permission to tell the story before uh, I came on the <laughs> podcast. And she wanted me to, to specify that uh, not killing Austin was 100% the right choice. <laughs> and that by retiring him instead, it showed narratively that there was another option mm -hmm. to this superhero existence aside yeah. from being a hero or being dead. But her new character was named Haley. Her new character was uh, a girl. And a few months after she started playing that character, she came out to all of us at the table and um, came out as a woman. And uh, I don't know that any, anything I ever accomplish uh, mm. in the TTRPG space or otherwise, aside from that, is going to mean as much as yep. that did. What is your favorite tabletop role-playing game character of all time? And similarly, that can be interpreted... However you want, when you watched, when you played an NPC that you have interacted with or been, etc. This is a this is a hard story to tell, um, just linearly, honestly. But um, the other game that we played on stream during the pandemic, the Urban Shadows game that I mentioned that we tried to record into a podcast and were not able to, that game, both of these games were incredibly meaningful because 
among other things, they were our only social interactions that we yeah. had at the time. And we were playing them every week. But the first character I played in our Urban Shadows game was named Harker. His name was Simon Harker. He was the veteran playbook. He was this kind of John Constantine, warlocky figure, and he was missing uh, an arm. And he was kind of old. He was kind of grizzled. His backstory as it came out was that he and his ex-girlfriend had been servitors to this demon witch who was sort of the big bad of our campaign. And um, Harker, who was very smart and very capable, eventually negotiated for them to be released. He earned his freedom, and then he tricked the demon into freeing his girlfriend, and it cost him his arm. And that was a sacrifice he had made. And the heartbreaking part of the story was that they went home after that. They moved in together, and they tried to start a life. But his girlfriend at the time, who was an incredibly traumatized person and an incredibly violent person because of that, could not deal emotionally with the lack of power and went back to the demon, went back to serve the demon more. And that was kind of the heartbreak in his backstory, right, was that he had sacrificed everything for this person that he loved, only to have them fall back into the life that he had rescued mm -hmm. them from. Parker died partway through the campaign, and in thinking about what I was going to play next, we organized the story so that his, his ex, his ex-girlfriend Julia, also died. But she died kind of doing the right thing right in the aftermath of Simon's death. And so when I brought in a new character, I brought in Julia, except she was the Revenant playbook, mm. which is an um, a undead force of vengeance, essentially, yeah. like an animated corpse that only exists for vengeance and violence. And I played her as this very mindless sort of killing machine. And a moment came up in the campaign where um, she had the opportunity to be purged of the dark animating force. In the aftermath of that, because it's powered by the apocalypse, I switched playbooks to the vessel, which is this sort of uh, Frankenstein-y kind of thing. And, and the justification was that, you know, she was now uh, a reanimated corpse, but she didn't have the super strength of a, of a vengeance spirit or anything like that. But she was clear-headed for the first time, and she was able to make her own choices. And so I got to play her through this entire arc of meeting her from somebody else's perspective, mm. and then her choosing finally to make this sacrifice because I don't know if you know anything about like addiction, but <laughs> if you try to make the choice for somebody to pull them out of that, whatever, whatever they're addicted to, it's probably not going to stick. Yeah. They have to make the choice for themselves. So she got the opportunity to make this choice for herself. She died in the process. She lost her agency again. And then she came back the final time with her agency and she was able to make the choice. Like she didn't want to kill anymore. She didn't want to be violent anymore. She wanted to start a life. And it was kind of too little too late because Harker was already dead. And that was kind of the, the tragedy of it. But she still put in the work. And I don't know that I will ever have a, a character arc as satisfying as that one ever again. It was very unique circumstances. Last question. What gives you hope? Honestly, LFTA does. Life from the Apocalypse does, not in and of itself, not because of anything that we do, but because of the people that support it. Because we, we tell these like dumb, silly stories on the internet, and they're like blatantly anti-capitalist and leftist, and we like we say ACAB all the time. And um, I, I, <laughs> we, <laughs> there are like these dumb, uh, super dumb in jokes that happen on the stream sometimes. Our Academy H podcast has a, a piece of merch attached to it that is a hat that just says piss arc. 
And that is from a joke that came up in one of our live recording sessions on Twitch. And it didn't make it into the into the podcast, but we still made merch out of it. And people bought it. We only made it because I put a picture of it up as a joke. And people were like, yeah, I'll buy that. I'll buy that hat. And they did. They bought the Pissar cat. And that blows my mind. But we just, we run our mouths all the time about police brutality and like collective action and we ask people to donate instead of you know giving us money directly and fully understanding that you know it's very satisfying for people to support the creators that they care about we just yeah. ask people not to do that and people still show up and they they give a fuck about what we're doing and i think the way that we have seen the response to our messages and what we do grow over the time that we have been doing this as people start to to take notice gives me like endless hope for the future Will, congratulations. You've made it through the gauntlet. You've made it through the entirety of your Reckless Talk interview. Again, congratulations as your victory prize. Please tell everyone again who you are, who you've been, where to find you, how to support you, all the good stuff. I was told there would be a trophy. Well, uh, it's like a, it's more of like a heart trophy, you know, where it's like you will forever get to hold in your heart that I was on uh, uh, this tabletop role-playing game interview show that's a great point i can i can already feel it good <laughs> uh, you should get that checked out it's not again it is a purely emotional spiritual experience no 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 i can we take no responsibility it. for any blockages of your cardiac system go see a doctor absolutely i'll get right on that um hi everybody thank you so much for hanging out uh, and listening to this uh, i only know how to end this one way because we do this live usually um, <laughs> my name is will i'm one of the storytellers and uh organizers for live from the apocalypse a not-for-profit ttrpg studio that makes actual play content in live stream form and podcast form to raise money for nonprofits, aid organizations, etc. You can find everything we do at livefromtheapocalypse.com or you can follow us on twitch.tv slash livefromtheapocalypse where we do all of our storytelling, including the live recording sessions of our podcasts. And if you want to listen to them in a fully edited and soundscaped and fairly good quality podcast format, <laughs> you can find Live From The Apocalypse on your platform of choice. Hey, there we, we go. see what we did there. Oh, I mean, you have been a guest on Reckless to Talk, so yes, <laughs> I did see what you did there. <laughs> will, thank you very, very much. All those things will be linked in the show notes. Appreciate you greatly, and, uh, and thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Bye. Should I say bye? Bye. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>